Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Corumbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. All good martinis for conservatives today. We've been doing a lot of sighing this week on the Three Martini Lunch, so it's time to actually talk about some stories that leave us with at least a little bit of a smile on our face. And no, it's not Friday yet, but it is Thursday. So, Jim, hope springs eternal, right? Yeah, except for Jets fans. <laughs> we were talking about that before we started today, and it's not a good uh, scenario right now for Jets By fans. By the time so. this podcast is done, there'll probably be at least three more starters who are knocked out in practice. So apparently our entire, all of our players are made of styrofoam. They're not as durable as you might think football players are. So that's the bad news. Okay, let's talk about happy stuff, Greg. We only got happy stuff. And and to start with uh, the happy news, we got to tell you that we're sponsored again today by Honey. Honey's about as easy as it gets to save money. You literally need two clicks to install it on your computer, and then it finds the savings for you on the various websites. You don't have to go find the coupons or the discount codes. Joinhoney.com slash martini. Much more on that in just a little bit. So, Jim, let's start with our first good martini. And as, of course, we talked about yesterday, and everybody knows, yesterday was the 18th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And as often the case when this anniversary comes around, folks who were prominent in the Bush administration, and certainly on that day, are brought back for retrospectives, maybe some analysis of where things currently are with the war on terror or other things happening in domestic or foreign affairs. And so yesterday on the Today Show... Condi Rice was uh, one of the guests. She, of course, was National Security Advisor in the first four years of the Bush administration, then Secretary of State. And for whatever reason, Savannah Guthrie decided to dust off the Russia conspiracy theory from 2016 and tried to get Condi Rice to admit that Russia is the real reason that Donald Trump won in 2016 and Condi was having none of it. When you look at the 2016 election and you look at it, how, relatively speaking, it was decided by a handful of, of votes in a few states, do you think it's possible that the Russia's election interference actually worked? It actually elected Donald Trump I, over Hillary I don't Clinton? think there is any evidence of that. And, you know, I really don't think that that's a good conversation to have. Mm. I, I think that really does devalue the people in Wisconsin and Michigan and others who decided to vote for President Trump. But whether you like this president or not, whether you believe uh, that he should have been president or not, um, let's, let's give the credit to the Americans who went out and voted for somebody who they thought would bring change. And the question is, um, are we going to be responsive to some of the messages that were out there? And do you hear me now? People who felt that they were disadvantaged by globalization, the unemployed coal miner in West Virginia, the opioid addicted person in Pennsylvania. Are we going to be responsive to those people? That's really the question we should be asking. Jim, fantastic response. It's so easy to say Russia and racism is the reason 2016 turned out the way it did. I think Condi Rice is a lot closer to the truth. Yeah. First of all, you know, listening to that, Greg, makes me miss Condi Rice. Year by year, there's always a little bit of speculation that she would run for president. She never seemed all that interested. Much more likely to someday end up NFL commissioner than president of the United States. She's one of those people who can, who can speak extemporaneously in paragraphs. <laughs> which is a really undervalued skill in politics when you're trying to explain things that can be complicated. And I think her assessment is quite right. And by the way, if you, you know, know anything about Condi Rice, you know she does not agree with this president on many issues. Doesn't see eye to eye, but she also doesn't, you know, recognizes a lot of what the Russia discussion is, is meant to be. Uh, and for, by the way, for those who want more information on it, I have on National Review earlier, I got a chance to go over to Austria and talk about this a bit. 
you know, Russia should not be meddling in our elections. What they do on social media, you know, last, last cycle was bad. We don't have to tolerate it. Companies should take it down when they find it. This is all bad. But we also, one, shouldn't overestimate the impact of it. And two, a lot of the discussion surrounding it is clearly meant to delegitimize Trump's victory in 2016. Say so that, well, look, it was really close and clearly it was Russia that put him over the top. There's no way the American people of their own volition would choose to elect Donald Trump. And you know that assumes facts that are not in evidence, that assumes that people uh, decided who to vote for based on what they saw on Facebook. And as you know, I cited in that report and lots of other people have noticed, the vast majority of the stuff that was, you know, Hillary stinks was going to people who already self-identified as very conservative, according to Facebook's own algorithm. So unless you think there are a whole bunch of very conservative voters out there who were very tempted to vote for Hillary before the Russian disinformation campaign began, that probably wasn't decisive. And again, let's just, you know, you really shouldn't be looking at Trump's election and say, ah, oh, well, there's nothing we need to worry about here if you're a Democrat, or even if you're not a Democrat. You, know, you shouldn't look at this and say, ah, oh, Clearly, Americans feel good about their government. They feel good about how the country is being run. They feel comfortable with the economic conditions. They feel comfortable with the level of opportunity in their lives. You know, the country does not elect Donald Trump if they think everything's going hunky-dory. They stick to the incumbent party. It, you know, this is by an issue that a whole bunch of, you know, not either anti-Trump or not so Trump-friendly conservatives and Republicans like myself need to contemplate is, okay, this was a message from the electorate. What are they saying here? What, what are we putting out there that they don't like and that they want to steer it in a different direction? Maybe these people are right. Maybe they aren't. But you can't just hand wave them away and say, ah, all a bunch of racists, ah, all a bunch of, you know, uh, Neanderthals who are brainwashed by Russian propaganda, yada, yada. Um, and I think Rice articulates this very well. And, uh, you know, the administration, you know, again, there are a whole bunch of people who are not completely 100 percent with Donald Trump but who can make the case for him and the case for change that he presented uh, that they probably would be wise to utilize. Jim, well said by you and certainly well said by Condi Rice as well. You know, we have a pretty clear policy here when it comes to President Trump. When we think he's right, we say so. When we think he's way off, uh, we say that as well. But one of the things we keep hearing constantly from the pro-Hillary people is that, well, just look at Trump's temperament and it's clearly obvious that we elected the wrong person because he's not up to the job of being president. You know what Hillary Clinton's been doing the last couple of days? She was over at an art exhibit in Venice, Italy, at a fake Resolute desk, leafing through WikiLeaks emails about her. So I'm never getting on board the argument that we somehow missed out on something great because she never was president. Yeah, you know, God, you know when I see William Devane pitching, is it catheters on, on late night commercials or something or... I know Alan Thicke was doing them for a while with, you know, warning you about the tax adjustment services. You always feel a little bit sad. Greg, watching Hillary Clinton do an art exhibit in Venice or wherever it was is kind of like watching the Ghostbusters do birthday parties. <laughs> oh, man. Excellent. All right. You know what she could be doing with her time instead of pretending she's president at a fake Resolute desk? not even in this country, is saving money online. Now, she's got a lot of money, thanks to some shady propositions to the Clinton Foundation. But for the rest of us who try to live life honestly, honey is the way to go to save money when shopping online. Because nine times out of ten, shopping online beats going to the store. Whether it's saving on driving time or not having to wade through the crowded stores, finding a parking spot, reaching for that last thing that you want and hoping it's still on sale you don't need that. But nine times out of 10, you're overpaying when you shop online unless you use Honey. 
Honey finds coupon codes and other discounts across the web and applies them automatically. So just think about how much money you could be saving if you used Honey. I've used the example of my colleague, my boss, Rich McFadden, who subbed for me a couple of times. He says as the, the boss of a relatively small organization here, he doesn't have time to go through all these different uh, coupon codes and discounts that are over here or over there on a website. Having Honey at the checkout is the simplest way to do it, and it saves him money and saves Radio America money. And there's so many great places where Honey can save you money. Could be a couple bucks on a pizza at Pizza Hut. Could be more or something at Best Buy or Macy's or even bigger at a place like Expedia. You're going to save money. You know, Greg, the average user of Honey saves about $126 per year. That's like 25 cups of cold brew. That's a pair of AirPods. And, you know, I mean, why spend your money on that when you probably know you're going to lose them at some point? <laughs> uh, half of a college textbook or 126 $1 tacos. I don't know about you. I'll pay a little extra for my tacos. I'm not sure where you're getting the meat if, you only, if your taco is only a dollar. But fine. 10 million people are already saving with honey. Time magazine calls honey basically free money. There's really no reason not to use honey. It's free to use, installs on your computer in just two clicks, and it'll save you money so you can treat yourself to something nice. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash martini. That's joinhoney.com slash martini. All right, Jim, on to our second good martini today. And this news came to us yesterday evening, courtesy of the U.S. Supreme Court in a 7-2 to two decision. NBC News has the story. The nation's highest court giving the Trump administration permission to enforce its toughest restriction yet on asylum seekers, even though that policy is still being challenged in lower courts. The decision allows the government to deny asylum requests from migrants at the southern border who have traveled through Mexico or another country without seeking protection in that other country first. The move is expected to severely cut down on the number of immigrants from Honduras, Guatemala and El Salvador who can request asylum in the U.S. As I mentioned, a 7-2 decision. Sotomayor and Ginsburg were the two dissenting justices. And Jim, this makes a lot of sense. I mean, if your goal is to achieve asylum, asylum doesn't mean getting out of poverty. It means getting away from persecution, usually specifically aimed at you in a specific country. So odds are that you're probably not going to face that in the neighboring country. And so the country in question here, of course, is Mexico, because unless you're coming from Mexico, coming from El Salvador, Honduras, or Guatemala, like uh, NBC News was saying there, you have to go through Mexico. So why not ask for asylum there and see what happens? So what do you make of this? Yeah, this has been a particularly frustrating aspect of the immigration debate, because in theory, we should not have uh, vociferous objections and furious, you know, accusations and counter accusations. We would all want the same thing, which is to say, if you have a really legit claim for asylum, that if you are at risk of being killed uh, unjustly uh, or, or physically harmed unjustly in your home country, if you're a human rights activist or you criticize the government or something like that, then yeah, we would want to grant you asylum. Uh, I'd like to think that everybody left, right, and center would, would agree on that. We also would not want this policy being abused and for people who aren't really in this situation uh, to say, well, I don't have, I'm not being targeted by my government, I'm not under that but I've got an abusive husband and I have no choice but to come to the United States. Or there are gangs in my neighborhood and I've been marked for death by them. The only option for me is to come to the United States. You have to give me, let me become a legal citizen. We're not opening our door to everybody in the entire world who has one of these two problems. These two problems are tragic and serious and need to be dealt with, but 
you, these are not automatic entry to the United States. If there are problems with gangs in these Central American countries, these Central American countries really need to deal with them. There's only so much the United States of America can do with it. Every abusive relationship is an absolute tragedy and we hope everybody gets out of them, but that doesn't mean you get to come into the United States for this. And the, you know, a lot of folks on the left have made the arguments of, you know, this is, you know, how could you turn people away who are desperately seeking asylum? Well, some people lie. Some people are not actually desperately seeking asylum. Some people have decided to claim asylum because they've been told that's the easiest way to get to stay in the country. And, if, you know, this stuff is hard to prove one way or the other, particularly if you're coming from some uh, poor area with, with poor records, poor communication, stuff like that. Um, this is why we have judges review this, right? We have to you know, assess the validity of their claims. Um, so look, I, you know, and, and here's the thing, as you mentioned, if you are from some other country and you say, look, uh, I need to get away from my abusive husband, but Mexico won't do it, <laughs> you know, and, you're, and your home country, if your husband's back in, in Nicaragua or something like that, you, you should be safe in Mexico. You really should not. At the very least, you should be able to stay in Mexico while your claim is being processed for the United States. This is all reasonable. This is all, you know, at least potentially good faith. I know there's some people insist this is just Trump trying to restrict immigration any way he can. Um, but again, there's been, a, you know, you look at the number of people who claimed asylum, it has increased exponentially year by year. And it's very hard to believe that this is genuinely reflecting uh, changing conditions on the ground and that, you know, there just wasn't that, there just weren't any abusive husbands a couple of years ago, Greg. There just weren't any gangs a couple of years ago. No, there, of course there always were. The difference is that now people believe this will get them a, a asylum claim granted. And I don't think that's what the policy was set up for. And if we're going to change the policy, we should do so through legislation and through debate and by, you know, let, let Congress vote on this if that's what we want to make the new rules. So again, I think the Supreme Court made the right call. It is indeed a win for the Trump administration. Um, but I think it's also just generally a, a win for common sense that, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll let you come in if you have a legit asylum claim. But we have to evaluate it. And you got to wait on that side of the border while we're doing so. Um, and if, God forbid, you're in an immediate life or death situation, of course, the United States will handle that differently. But in most of these cases, these people can wait in Mexico. And now, thanks to the Supreme Court, they will be. But of course, uh, wanting to do that is evil. You've got uh, Dick Blumenthal, the senator from Connecticut, who says this will only increase uh, the problem that people have with cartels and human traffickers. Jim, I think if you know you're not getting in, you might not be all that interested in making the trip. But that's just yeah, wait, so, so why? Oh, he didn't are, say that. Are the that. cartels going to act worse because of this Supreme Court decision? Or I, I don't, I don't think I buy that. <laughs> I don't, you know, there, there, there's no logical reason. Well, I might not. You're right. I might not get in, so I'm not going to pay human trafficking. Like part of the problem is, is we have incentivized trying to get into this country illegally and then making the asylum claim. Let's move on to our final good martini, Jim. And this is kind of uh, double-fisted, although it involves Marianne Williamson. So maybe it's double-sipping some sort of uh, herbal tea or whatever it is that uh, she drinks in the things that she does. Uh, but let's start with uh, Ed Rendell and Elizabeth Warren. So we got a Democratic debate tonight. Uh, only 10 people qualified. They're all going to be on the same stage tonight. It's in Houston. It's on ABC. But uh, Elizabeth Warren is closing in on Joe Biden in some state polls and some national polls. And so Ed Rendell, former mayor of Philadelphia, former chairman of the DNC, former Pennsylvania governor, too, I believe, um, has an op-ed in the Washington Post where he's going after Elizabeth Warren for being a campaign finance hypocrite. He says he comes to this conclusion first 
Quote, because she transferred $10.4 million from her Senate re-election campaign to her presidential campaign fund, more than $6 million came in contributions of $1,000 and up, as the New York Times recently noted. The senator appears to be trying to have it both ways, get the political upside from eschewing donations from higher-level donors and running a grassroots campaign, while at the same time using money obtained from those donors in 2018. The $10.4 million gave Warren a substantial head start in building a presidential campaign staff and doing other things for which the money is essential. If she wasn't being hypocritical, she would have taken only the dollars raised in smaller increments from her Senate race and transferred those into her presidential account. Second, Warren attacked former Vice President Joe Biden for holding a kickoff fundraiser in Philadelphia in April, which she criticized as a swanky private fundraiser for wealthy donors. Well, I helped organize that affair, and I thought her attack was extremely hypocritical because nearly 20 of us who attended the Biden fundraiser had also given her $2,000 or more in 2018 at closed-door fundraisers in swanky locations. So not only are they trading barbs, then you got Marianne Williamson. She was on a show called America This Week. It's a Sinclair program hosted by Eric Bowling, who you might remember from the Fox News Channel. And after a recent interview, she said this on a live mic after she thought she was off the air. What does it say that Fox News is nicer to me than the lefties are? I'm sorry? It, what does it say that the conservatives are nicer to me? It's a bizarre world, man. It's such a bizarre mm-hmm. world. You know, I'm such a lefty. I mean, I'm a serious lefty. But they're so... I understand why people on the right call them godless. I mean, it's like... I didn't think the left was as mean as the right. They are. Yeah. Oh, yes. And then some. Uh, Jim, so what do you make of Marianne being frustrated with the Dems and Ed Rendell and Elizabeth Warren going back and forth over who's elitist? First of all, Marianne, join us on the dark side of the force. <laughs> we have cookies. Um, I've always kind of wondered. Uh, I remember it was, I think it was the late Andrew Breitbart who had got, was on Twitter and he had this, this habit of re- every time somebody would... Uh, sent him some horrible profane diatribe. He would retweet it. Um, And he did so to say, hey, the left thinks that they're nice and tolerant and open-minded and kind and the embodiment of all these good virtues, but they're actually horrible people full of hatred. And here's the the, the evidence. And I I have mixed feelings about Breitbart's decision when he did that, because one, I think it, you know, Breitbart had a lot of followers. So in a way, you know, him retweeting you was kind of a way, it it was attention. It was giving attention to people who were, uh, it may have incentivized some bad behavior a bit. Maybe this would have happened no matter what. So it's not like this is all on Breitbart's plate. But, you know, the other thing also is I, I kind of raised the question, was there anybody outside of the left who thought that progressives were just inherently nicer and more polite and more understanding and, and you know, goo-goo and all that stuff? I, I, I'm doubtful of that. I, I don't think there are that many people who walk around with that kind of uh, mentality anymore other than people who are progressives who just want to believe that we are the good people and the other side are the bad people. But, you know, it's kind of interesting to see Marianne Williamson, uh, you know, get that. And let's face it. There are a bunch of conservatives who hear Marianne Williamson and say, oh, my God, she's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. But then she talks about the country being spiritually unwell and needing to heal the country and spirit. There are a bunch of, you know, probably probably, you know, quite a few, you know, religious conservatives who kind of nod and say, hey, she's got a point there. So, uh, you know, hey, look, if there's some day to build a broader alliance of, of you know, uh, peace and understanding and all that kind of happy, good stuff. Great. It'd be great to see that. Um, as for Rendell taking a shot at Warren, tonight is the first night we've had Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren on the same stage at the same time. By the way, letting everyone know, Greg, it starts at 8 and it's supposed to go on till 11. 11? Three hours. Oh, my word. Three hours of Democratic debate tonight. Ten candidates. Oh, that's painful just to hear. 
right? I mean, like this, I know this is our good martini, uh, <laughs> but you know, just you, you can hear the dread in my voice. Um, <laughs> here's the thing, it's worth noting these things usually run a little bit over, like, you know, either applause or back and forth. So it's entirely possible this thing ain't ending at uh, 11 o'clock in the e evening and the evening news is gonna get started a little bit late. So we'll see how things go. You know, nobody needs three hours of this. Nobody needs three hours of this. Anyway, um, it'll be interesting to see. My suspicion is, is that Warren, you know, look, you know, Biden is still a front runner. Um, there's a poll that comes out, came out just today, just a few moments ago, actually, that had them tied. I'm a little skeptical of that. But, you know, Warren is number two and, and seems to be rising pretty well. So everybody thinks Warren's going to come out and take some swings at Joe Biden. The Rendell op-ed looks like a preemptive strike of, whoa, 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 whoa. You're kind of a giant hypocrite when it comes to this hitting big money stuff. And we will play this card against you if you come after our guy. Um, now I myself, Craig, I'm actually, I, I don't think this is this body slam uh, the Biden campaign or that Rendell thinks it is. I just think that most Democrats have long since made their peace with their party's hypocrisy on campaign finance. You know that, look, big money corrupts people and it's destroying our democracy. That's why I'm taking all this money from Tom Steyer and George Soros and, you know, <laughs> all these guys, you know, like, you know, of course, Democrats take a whole bunch of lot. I take a whole lot of money. The, you know, um, and Rendell says in the op-ed that Obama uh, used to pledge, I have not accepted any money from Wall Street firms. No, he's just accepted money from employees of Wall Street firms. You know, do, do you think the employees want totally different policies than the firm itself? That, but essentially, because this is so common, I don't see... Uh, Democrats suddenly turning away from Warren and all this stuff. Look, as I laid out in today's morning jolt, at some point, somebody's going to turn to Elizabeth Warren in one of these debates and say, look, you said you're a woman of color. You're not a woman of color. You never should have claimed to be a woman of color. And when you say you had no idea that Harvard Law School was touting you as a woman of color, I don't believe you. And I think that is probably the single biggest weakness she has. This is a party that's obsessed with identity politics. Very easy to understand why a whole bunch of minorities might have a problem with uh, Elizabeth Warren touting herself as a woman of color back in her law school days. And it's very easy to see a whole bunch of white Americans who don't like white Americans who attempt to benefit from uh, minority status. I know Elizabeth Warren says she would never benefited from affirmative action, et cetera, et cetera. Another case of, I don't believe you. I don't think you tout that in the, you know, in, in the environment of an Ivy League law school unless you think it's going to help you professionally. Um, so that's the war and weakness. Now, whether Biden decides to go after it tonight, whether it goes for later, whether everybody's kind of hoping somebody else will, um, you know, in addition to not having Williamson tonight, uh, there's no Tulsi Gabbard. So you never know which random person on stage Gabbard is going to do her homework in and just knife in the back <laughs> and gut like a fish for, in front of the entire audience. Uh, so I'll be missing that part of the debate. Too. Yeah, that'll be sad. And you're right. Uh, those are the, the ways to go after Elizabeth Warren. Cultural appropriation, if that's the term that we're supposed to use now. Or the fact that, yeah, she has a plan for everything, but it also involves us paying much higher taxes and, and huge government. Ultimately, I don't think people care that much about campaign financing. In the abstract, they do. But if they like the candidate, they're not really going to kick him to the curb because, oh, I don't know, I didn't like that one fundraiser you did in Boston. So. Yeah, I mean, you go, okay, is she a hypocrite on this? Sure. sure. But really, like, everybody's a hypocrite on this. So <laughs> you know, it, it's a wash. Um, and your point about, you know, raising taxes, I, I agree with you, Greg. I think it's probably more of a general election liability. This is the one that's probably the biggest stink bomb of the Democratic primary. Yes. Like, the interesting thing is you, know, you use the term cultural appropriation. 
oh, you're white and you're wearing an Asian dress to your prom. How dare you? Like people roll their eyes at. But saying you're an ethnicity that you really aren't, like that's literal cultural appropriation. That's, you know, that's Rachel Dolezal style. And that's where people are like, okay, now you might have a real issue. As a country, we don't like phonies. And that's, you know, that's where I think her, her soft underbelly is, so to speak. Right. So, okay. It's Thursday night, so you could watch three hours of the Democratic debate, which is also going to include Jorge Ramos as a panelist. So, you know, those will be really down the middle questions. And you've also got the NFL. You've got Buccaneers-Panthers tonight. So if you go with the three hours of Democratic debate, you might as well put together the drinking game or the bingo card or the prop bets. You know, how many things is Beto going to want to ban? How many times will Warren say she has a plan? How many times will Joe Biden say the wrong thing? I mean, there are ways to entertain yourself, because if you actually just listen to the substance of the policy, if there is any, uh, you're going to be bored real quick. So you got to figure out new ways to entertain yourself. Yeah, I mean, look, a lot of competitors tonight, everybody's going to be going hard. Uh, they say it's early in the process, but, you know, the old saying, it gets late early out here. You don't want to have consecutive bad nights. So, Greg, I think Cam Newton's going to be the big winner tonight. <laughs> oh, oh, you meant the debate. Oh, I have no idea who's going to I'd get rid of one of them to watch Cam Newton on the debate stage, probably. <laughs> In one of those post-game outfits? Sure. <laughs> That'd be pretty fun. Hey, do we know what Andrew Yang's uh, gimmick is tonight? He said he's going to do something that nobody's ever done before. I've heard it could be vaping. It could be crowd surfing. I don't know. Repelling? Wait, Who knows? Greg, I'm old enough to remember when Alan Keyes was crowd surfing in 2000. <laughs> so I guess everything does come back in style eventually. Um, the, the, the big rumor, we, we, did, we, we debated making this one of our topics. I don't feel like I'm familiar enough with it. But, you know, like banning vaping just seems like the weirdest what the heck were you thinking mo moment out of the Trump administration. I kind of feel like it, it'll probably get derailed uh, as soon as, you know, somebody talks to the president about it. But uh, vaping on stage seems like the sort of thing that Yang would do to kind of say, hey, I'm the hip outsider candidate. Andrew Yang's going to have a regular Marlon Brando moment, of, you know, <laughs> lighten up his vaping uh, USB device or whatever it is it looks like people are inhaling into when they do that sort of thing. What are you rebelling against, Andrew Yang? What do you got? Oh, man. 92, Bill Clinton tried to pretend he never inhaled the joint. By 2004, the Democrats were <sighs> saying that they were apologizing if they hadn't. Pretty soon, we're going to have one lighting a joint on stage. I feel like we're not that far away. I don't know if it'd be this cycle, but we're getting there. When's the next debate in California? <laughs> Mark your calendar. Jim? I don't know if we'll be watching the entire three hours. If you do, congratulations to you. I'll probably be dipping in and out from time to time, but I'm sure we'll talk about it tomorrow. See you then. Greg, if my tweeting gets light at a certain period, it's because I'm taking copious notes <laughs> and I totally haven't tuned out. <laughs> Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And don't forget, get online. Go save some money through Honey. Join free at joinhoney.com slash martini. And tune in again Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.